Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 119, and we'll be reading verses 97 to 104 this morning. Psalm 119, verse 97. There the word of Christ says this. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my, st- to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, you say that if any man lacks wisdom, let him come to you, and that you will give graciously, Lord, without reproach. Lord, we need your wisdom. Lord, we desire it. Lord, we know that your wisdom is superior to all the wisdom of this world. And so, Father, we pray that today you would grant to us, Lord, understanding. Lord, grant to us greater faith. Lord, grant to us your wisdom. Give us confidence and conviction, Lord, that your word is the only source of wisdom in this world. And that we would rely upon it. And that, Lord, we would reject and hate everything that contradicts your word. So, Lord, show us these things, and, Lord, give to us a greater love for your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, there are many sources of wisdom in this life, and there are many people in this world who claim to have wisdom. Many people, nearly everyone, how many billions of people are on the earth, every one of them claims to be wise and to have understanding on how to live this life. But not all wisdom is true wisdom. And not all wisdom will make one wise in the sight of God. Only when a man will submit himself and his life to the wisdom of God found in the word of God, then he will have true wisdom. Then he will be wise indeed. We read yesterday at men's Bible study from James chapter 3. And in James chapter 3, the apostle there is contrasting the wisdom from above with the wisdom that is from this world showing the source of each of these wisdoms. James chapter 3, verse 13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There is disorder in every vile thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There, the apostle tells us that there is a wisdom that comes from this earth, an earthly, natural, demonic wisdom of this world. And those who adhere to this wisdom, they will claim to have understanding. They will claim to have knowledge, but ultimately the wisdom of this world will result in their destruction. And those who follow them will be destroyed with them. It says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. In contrast to this earthly, demonic, natural wisdom, there is the wisdom that comes from above a wisdom that comes down out of heaven from God. And those who adhere to this wisdom, they will have true understanding. Not in the eyes of this world, but in the eyes of God. And those who listen and believe this wisdom, they will dwell securely. They will not be destroyed by God, but they will live forever. As it says in Proverbs 1.33, He who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. This is what the prophet David knows and understands. Not all wisdom is equally valid. Not all wisdom will lead to life. 
He knows that there is the wisdom of God that leads to life, and this wisdom is found only in the Word of God. In his focus on God's Word, he is highlighting the wisdom of God, especially in relationship to other sources of wisdom. God's Word gives him an advantage in life. God's Word puts him on a secure foundation. God's Word places him in a better place than other men. Because the wisdom found in the Holy Bible did not originate with man. It did not originate on this earth. It did not come from the mind of any person. But rather, it originated with God in heaven, and it came from his mind. And this causes him to excel above all of his enemies, above his teachers, and even above the aged in regards to wisdom and understanding. He has exceeded all of them because of the word of God. So the question before us today, do we want to be wise or do we want to be fools? Well, the Bible is the key. Everything must be evaluated. Everything we see, everything we hear, we must evaluate it based upon the word of God. Only then will we be wise in the sight of God. We must believe this. We must have this conviction. The Bible is the only source of wisdom on this earth. It is not a source of wisdom. It is not first among equals. It is the only source of wisdom on this earth. And if we would be wise, then we must know and adhere to the Bible. We must believe it with all of our heart. So let's look at Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. And we'll see how this is taught by the prophet. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Here, the prophet begins with an exclamation, a proclamation concerning his great love for the law of God. A shout of joy. He's ecstatic about the law of God. You don't have to beat him over the head to get him to read his Bible. You don't have to coax him with rewards, with treats, with these types of things to get him to come to church like so many people. He loves the word of God. He wants to consume the Bible, and the law is not a burden to him. He does not have disdain for the law of God. He loves the law of God. He says, I love your law because he sees the great value in the law of God. The law of God is good for him because it teaches him how to live a godly life. It teaches him how to regulate his life before God. He loves God because he's been redeemed by God, and now... He wants to live a life pleasing to God. And it is the law of God that teaches him how to do so. And as a result of that, he loves the law of God. This is the attitude of a believer towards the law of God. An unbeliever, he hates the law of God because the law exposes his sin. The law restrains his sin. The unbeliever cannot endure God's law because he loves his sin and he does not want anything to get in the way of his own fleshly carnal lust. But a believer is not like that. A believer, he hates his sin. He wants to overcome his sin. He wants to do what's pleasing and right in the sight of God. He wants to live a righteous life. And the law helps him do this because it reveals to him, it teaches him the will of God for his life. And so he loves the law of God. Because of his love for God's law, he says, it is my meditation all day long, all the day, all day. He is thinking about the word of God. It's on his mind as he goes throughout the day. He wants his life to conform to Christ. And he wants that to be true of him all day long. So he meditates on the law of God all day long. If we only needed to be faithful to God in the morning, Well, then we would meditate on the law in the morning, but then in the evening, we could give our mind to other things, right? We could leave off meditating on God's law and fill our mind with the things of this world. But that's not what he wants, and that's not what any true believer wants. They want their life to be faithful to God all day long. And how many days a week? Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they want their life to conform to Christ. And how does that happen? But by meditating on the law of God. This is what he wants. Faithfulness all the time. In the morning, in the evening, in the middle of the day. The first thought in the morning, the last thought before he goes to bed, he's meditating on the law of God. And this is the way that we must be as well. Psalm 119 verse 55. 
says, O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. Also, verse 62, at midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Psalm 119, verse 147 says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. And then also 164, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Seven times a day, he says, I praise you. All day long I'm praising you because all day I'm thinking upon your law. I'm meditating on it all day and then I break out in praise to God because of your righteous ordinances. In the morning, at night, seven times a day. Psalm 119, verse 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. Here, he says, God's commandments give him wisdom. A wisdom greater than the wisdom of his enemies. He has more wisdom. He's wiser than they are. He has many enemies because of his righteousness. Right? We know that Jesus says in Matthew 5.10 that blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those who live a righteous life, a godly life in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. Well, when his enemies rise up against him, he's not tempted to forsake the wisdom of God and adopt the wisdom of his enemies. The enemies of righteousness, they're not living for the life to come. They're consumed only with this present world, and they do not consider that one day they're going to stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account. They don't fear the day of judgment. And because of that, they're not regulating their lives according to the law of God. But they're just doing whatever they please, whatever is right in their own eyes. Well, he's not like them. He's not thinking in this way. He's not living his life the way that they are. He is keeping the commandments of God near to his heart because he knows he's going to stand before God on the day of judgment. And he wants to be a good, wise, faithful slave of Christ. And because of this, he has more wisdom than his enemies. He's not going to compromise with them. He's not striking deals with them. He doesn't say, well, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. Right? My enemies, they don't fear God. They don't live a righteous life. Right? They're doing just fine. They're prospering. They have no enemies like I do. They have no hardships. So why should I serve the Lord, seeing that I gain no advantage? He's not thinking like this, but rather... He has more wisdom than all of his enemies because his enemies are not preparing for the day of judgment. They're not even thinking about the day of judgment. After all, the pastor told them that God loves everyone and we're all going to make it to heaven. So why do we have to think and worry about those things? But that's not him. He knows that there's a day of judgment. And so he's living a godly life in the fear of the Lord. They live only for this life, but he's living in light of the life to come. He knows there's a day of judgment, and he sees that the pathway of his enemies is going to end in their destruction. He knows where that pathway leads. He knows that it ends up going to hell, so he's not going to do it. He's not going to walk in the path of the wicked. Sure, they may have ease and comfort now. They may even have some fleeting pleasures of sin now, but those are fleeting pleasures They're short-lived pleasures, and those pleasures will soon give way to what? To judgment and eternal torments of hell. Their pathway is going to end in their destruction, in their death. But his pathway is going to end in his glorification. It's going to end in his full and final salvation. It is the eternal perspective. His eternal perspective gives him the advantage over his enemies. They may seem to have the advantage now, but it's only going to be short. It's only going to be momentary. They may appear to be living it up now, but soon they will go to hell and he will enter into the joy of his master. So he has more wisdom than them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what the word of God does for us. It gives us the wisdom, not of this world, but the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There, it's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God found in Christ Jesus that confounds and overcomes the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this world. Now, that will be done in our life, and it will be done ultimately on the day of judgment. Now, the people of the world, they say that they're very wise, and they say that we're fools. But ultimately, it will be proven by God that they are the fools, and we are the ones who are wise. And that's what he's talking about here. He's thinking about this in terms of, yes, his own experience and what is true now. In reality, right now, he is the wise man, and they are fools. But at this point, they don't see that. They think he's a fool and that they are very wise, but ultimately in the end, God will prove that he was wise and they are fools. He has more wisdom than his enemies. Psalm 119.99. Also, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. We have many teachers in this life, many teachers on many different topics, math, science, philosophy, economics, right, government, history, psychology, right, or some skill that we might need in life, mechanics, uh, computer programming, right, plumbing, whatever it is, there are many things that we need to know in this life, and we have the need for many teachers in this life to teach us these things, right? We need to know certain things in life. Yet how many teachers are teaching in accordance with the Bible? How many teachers are instructing their students with the fear of God in mind? with eternity in view. This is very few, it's very rare. Most teachers, even if it's a good subject, are just teaching their subject with no thought of the life to come, with no thought of godliness, with no goal of righteousness, with no thought that they will stand before God on the day of judgment. And in some cases, what the teacher is teaching is actually in direct contradiction to what the Bible says, to the word of God. So, for example, take a true believer, a true Christian, who is sitting in a college biology class. It is highly likely that his professor is teaching him evolution. Well, doesn't that student, even if he's 18, 19 years old, he doesn't have a PhD, he did not attend an Ivy League school. Actually, we should call him Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy League school, like Harvard or Yale. But that... 18 or 19 year old student who believes the Bible, who believes the biblical account of creation, he has more insight than the so-called expert, the so-called teacher who is spewing out lies in his classroom. And even if the subject matter is not contrary to the Bible, like mathematics or something else, many times the teacher, his presuppositions, his goals, his conclusions, are contrary to the Bible. He's not teaching with the thought of godliness. He's not teaching with the thought of the life to come. This is why he has more insight than all of his teachers. Now, this seems to be a contradiction because one would expect in the teacher-student relationship that the teacher should be the one with more insight. Yet in this case, the student excels the teacher in insight. Maybe not in mathematics, maybe not in science, maybe not in mechanics, but in terms of spiritual heavenly wisdom. That's what he's talking about. That is why he has more insight, because he's thinking about heaven. He's thinking about the life to come. He's thinking about spiritual things, not simply the things of this world. For the godly man, right, the true believer, whatever he is taught in life, he's always evaluating it in relationship to the life to come. Also, this relates to church life as well. In many cases, we can have more insight 
than the so-called teachers of the Bible. Because much of what is being taught in the churches in the name of Christ actually contradicts what the Bible says. How we worship God, how a man is saved, how we live a godly life. Much of what is commonly taught in the average church, in the Bible colleges, in the seminaries, on these topics and many other topics, actually undermines what the Bible says. In the name of Christ, they undermine Christ. In the name of the Bible, they contradict the Bible. They undermine the Bible. Well, if we believe what the Bible says, then we'll have more insight than they do. We will have more wisdom than they do, though they may be a teacher of the Bible. They may even be a professor, a doctor of theology. But if they don't believe the Bible, we have more insight than them. Even the commoner, even the average man who doesn't have the highfalutin education, he can have more insight And there are many of you who actually have more insight than the seminary professors I had. You understand more about the Bible than they do because you believe the word of God, whereas they rejected it. This is what he means here. Psalm 119, 100. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. Here, he understands more than the aged, the elderly. Again, typically speaking, the elderly, the aged should have more wisdom and understanding than the youths, right? Than the young people. But in this case, he understands more than than the aged. And the question is, why? Why is this happening in his life? What is it that is making the difference? Well, notice what he says. Because I observe your precepts. He's not talking about his IQ. He's not talking about his wisdom. He's not talking about his smarts. None of that matters. What does that matter at all? What makes the difference in his life is his reliance on the word of God. This is always the issue. This is the issue in all of these instances. What has given him such understanding is his dependence on the word of God. That is what has made all the difference in these three scenarios. Right? In making these contrasts between his life and his enemies. His teachers, the aged, right? Isn't that what he's doing? He's looking at his life in contrast to them. That's what he's doing. Well, in doing this, he's not boasting about himself. He's not a braggart who's boasting about how wonderful he is, how much smarter he is than everyone else. The purpose of making this distinction and bringing this contrast to light is to highlight the wisdom of God found in the word of God. This is the basis for his advancement. This is why he possesses such great wisdom and understanding because he relies on the word of God. It is God who has made him wise. What do you have that you have not received? It says in 1 Corinthians 6, what do you have that you have not? He's not boasting as if this wisdom came from himself. He knows it didn't come from him. What has given him the advantage is the word of God. It is God's wisdom found in his word. This is what he relies upon. So the issue is not young versus old. The issue is not students versus the teachers. The issue here is the one who relies on the word of God versus the one who does not rely on the word of God. And even in the scenarios where you would expect the one to be greater than the other, The teacher should have more wisdom than the student. The aged should have more insight than the youth. Yet here, this has been confounded. It has been overturned because in this case, the student and the youth is relying on the word of God while the teacher and the aged are not. That's the difference in his life. Isaiah 8 verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have No, dawn. An old man who does not speak according to the word of God, he has no wisdom in him. A young man who does not speak according to the word of God has no wisdom in him. A teacher who does not speak according to the word of God has no wisdom in him. A student who does not speak according to the word of God has no light in him. Do they speak according to God's word? This is the issue that we must always determine. We should not listen to the aged simply because they are aged. 
nor should we reject the aged simply because they are aged. Right? This is commonly a problem. Two extremes. There are some who, because they're old, they say we shouldn't listen to them. What, what do they know? They can't even use an iPhone. These people, they're so backwards, right? Why would we listen to them? They're old and we're young and we know everything, right? There is the arrogance of youth that young people think they're smarter than everyone else. And they're not, okay? They're not, so let me set that straight. They think they are, but they're not, and they don't want to listen to the elderly. There's also another problem that there are some who think, oh, if they're old, then we should listen to whatever they said without any filter, we should just drink it down because they're old and they're wise, and that's what we should do. Well, both of these are wrong. Both of these are sinful and can lead us into danger. If they speak according to the word of God, then we should listen to them, whether they're young or old, whether they're a teacher or a student. Whoever is speaking the oracles of God, those are the ones we should listen to. And whoever is speaking contrary to the word of God, we shouldn't listen to them at all. We should reject everything that they say, right? So whatever our situation in life, whether we are young or old, whether we are somewhere in between, we can have wisdom, we can have insight, we can have understanding that exceeds many others if we are relying on the word of God. Even if we are young and do not have as many experiences in, in this life, we can be a source of wisdom to others. An example of this is Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verses 17 to 22. Psalm 105, verse 15. This is speaking of Joseph. It says, He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time came that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all of his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. There, Joseph, we know that Joseph was 30 years old when he became the second ruler in Egypt. That's a very young man. He was a very young man, and many of the other officials of Pharaoh would have been much older than him. Perhaps even Pharaoh was much older than Joseph. Yet Joseph taught his elders wisdom. He taught Pharaoh's elders, the elders of Egypt, he taught them wisdom. Well, how was he, being such a young man, not having all the experiences that they had, how was he able to teach them wisdom? The wisdom of what? The wisdom of God. He was teaching them the wisdom of God. So the young can have great wisdom if they're relying on the word of God. Now, that being said... In the church, the old should be the source of wisdom for the young. For those who have been Christians for 40 or 50 years should have more wisdom than the young. And it is actually a very shameful thing in the church for the youths to have more wisdom and more insight and more understanding than the aged. How can the youths in the church have more understanding? How can they see the issues more clearly? How can they be more eager to conform their life to the life of Christ? How can they be more committed than those who are older than them? Seeing that the older have more wisdom, should have more understanding, have more experiences and more interaction with the word of God. That should not be the case in the church. In the church, the aged should be the source of wisdom and understanding for the young. The aged should be an example to the young who are striving to become like them. This is what we should expect in the church. Titus chapter 2 puts this expectation here. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. 
so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Here, he expects, the apostle expects, the older women to be the source of wisdom for the younger women, that they are the ones teaching the younger women how to be good wives and how to be good mothers. And then the younger women should be humble. They shouldn't be arrogant and think they know everything, but rather they should be going to the older women, asking them to help them understand these things. This is the way that we should be in the church. There ought to be reciprocal uh, humility, love, helping each other in this way. But the older should have more wisdom, and they should be giving this wisdom to the younger. But also the younger, as long as what they're doing is in accordance with the word of God, then they're going to be a help to the older as well. And so we're going to be mutually beneficial one to another. Psalm 119, verses 101. 119-101 says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. Here, he doesn't want to walk in the pathway of evil. There are many evil paths in the world, many ways that contradict the Bible. Right? Anything that contradicts the Bible, this pathway is a pathway of evil. It is a road that has been formed. It has been paved by Satan. And the roads of Satan, they're not like the roads of Oklahoma filled with potholes and bumps. They're very smooth. It's easy sailing. They all go downhill. You get good gas mileage, right? And you sail right down into where? Into the pits of hell. This is where they lead to. He knows this. There are evil ways out there, many evil ways, and I don't want to go down those evil paths. I don't want to walk with the wicked on the pathway to hell. I don't want to be on a pathway that has been forged and formed by Satan. I want to walk with God. That's what he's saying. He wants to walk in the path of righteousness. So when he becomes aware of an evil path, of some ideology, some philosophy, some morality that is contrary to the word of God, he discerns this and says, no, I don't want to walk in that way. I don't want to be in that evil way. I'm going to reject it because that's demonic. It's earthly. It is unspiritual. It is an evil wisdom. And I don't want to walk in the pathway of wickedness. He's restraining his feet from every evil path. He knows that you cannot walk in the path of evil and also in the path of God's word. How can you do both of these at the same time? It's impossible. It's, these things are a contradiction. It's either one or the other. If you walk in the way of evil, then you cannot keep God's word. If you keep God's word, you cannot walk in the evil ways. It's black and white for him. There's no gray area in between. It is black and white. No compromise, either one or the other. Notice what it says in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How can you walk on the pathway of evil and be a friend of God? How can you walk in a path that has been forged by the world, the flesh and the devil, and still be a friend of God? You can't. It's impossible. So he rejects those things. He restrains his feet from every evil path because he wants to keep the word of God. And he knows he cannot do these two things simultaneously. That's the way he is, and that's how we must be as well. Verse 102. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. He does not turn aside from God's ordinances because he sees the source of them. Where did these ordinances come from? You yourself have taught me. These ordinances, this word, comes from God. It has divine origin. So we should not turn aside from the word of God and listen to the words of men. Why else would we do so? Why would we turn away from God's word unless we think there is some better word out there? some better source of wisdom out there, something superior to God's word that's going to be better for us. Isn't that what Eve did in the garden? Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three. 
They had the word of God given to them, but the word of the serpent, the word of the devil, was more appealing to them. They thought it would be better for them to listen to the voice of the devil than to listen to the voice of God. We have to remember where the Bible comes from. If we remember that the Bible comes from God and that God is the God of all wisdom, that God is true and every man is a liar, then why would we turn aside from God's word in order to believe the lies of man? Is it possible that a man would form a wisdom that is greater than God's? Is it possible for any man to say something that is wiser than God, that is better than what God has said? Is there any morality out there that is superior to the morality found in the Word of God? It's impossible for this to be the case. We will never find a wisdom that is superior to the wisdom of God found in the Word of God. So why would we reject it? Why would we turn aside from the wisdom of God, seeing that it comes from God? This is why the Apostle Paul is eviscerating the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, because they're turning aside. Galatians 1, 6 to 12, he is surprised, he's bewildered that they're so foolish, that they're turning aside from the true gospel from the wisdom of God in embracing a false gospel that comes from the devil. Galatians 1 verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the, what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel, contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is surprised. He is shocked. He is bewildered. How can you turn aside from the gospel? How can you reject the wisdom of God for a different wisdom, for a different gospel? Not that there really is one, but there are people who are telling you they have a better way. They have a better way. They have a superior way than the way of God. But no, he says you should not do that. You should not. Even if an angel is proclaiming to you a different gospel, a different wisdom, then let that angel be accursed. Let anyone be accursed who preaches anything contrary to the word of God. The Bible is God's word, not man. The Bible contains the very wisdom of God. The Bible came from God out of heaven. The Bible originated with God and not with men. Though God did use holy men to write the Bible, it did not originate with these holy men. It originated with God. The prophets and the apostles were merely instruments of God, used by God to write His Word. And they were not religious crazy men. right? They were not men who went up on a mountain by themselves in secret. They did not go out into the woods or into the wilderness eat a bunch of wild mushrooms, smoke some weed, and then come up with a new revelation from God. They were not insane. They were not demon-possessed men, but they were holy men who spoke from God so that what they wrote and what they said is the exact word of God without any mixture of error. It says so in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, this is the testimony of God concerning His own word. And we know that God cannot lie, so we should believe it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. says, We do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention, 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. No true prophecy ever came about by human will. False prophets, they speak according to their own human will. But we're not talking about false prophets. We're talking about the true prophets of God. They did not produce these prophecies by their own will. They did not come because of their speculations, their ramblings about God. But they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Not according to human will, but according to the will of God. And Peter says in verse 20 that we must know this first of all. First things, these are the basic principles of the Christian religion. Before we make any advancement in the wisdom of God, we must be fully convinced that the Bible is God's holy word. That it is true without any mixture of error. And anyone or anything that contradicts the Bible, that person is a liar and we should not listen to them. We have to believe this. We have to have this conviction. I know the Bible is true because it comes from God out of heaven. The Bible is not myth. It's not fiction. It's not legend. It is not fable. It is not the invention of curious religious men. They spoke from God. God used the will of man, but the Bible did not originate in the will of man, but it originated with God. Notice also, while we're in 2 Peter, chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. There, the words spoken by the prophets, the holy prophets he calls them, and the words spoken by your apostles originated in the commandment of the Lord and Savior. It's the word of Christ. That's why we call the Bible the word of Christ. It came from Christ, the Spirit of Christ in them, leading them to write these things. Also, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you look to these things, be diligent to be found in him, in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and for the day of eternity. Amen. There, when he's speaking of our beloved brother Paul, he says, according to the wisdom given to him. Given to him by whom? By God, right? By God. It is the wisdom given to him by God. So that what he writes is not his own wisdom. It is the wisdom of God. We must have this as our foundation. The Bible is the word of God. So why would I turn aside from the Bible for another source of wisdom? Why am I going to listen to another voice? Isn't Christ the good shepherd? Aren't we his sheep? Aren't we the flock of his pasture? Then whose voice should we listen to? We should only listen to the voice of Christ and not the voice of a stranger. And according to John chapter 10, verses 1 and 6, the true sheep will not listen to the voice of a stranger, but they will listen to the voice of Christ. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They won't listen to the voice of a stranger, but they listen to the voice of Christ. This is the way that we should be. We must evaluate everything according to the word of Christ. And if someone contradicts the word of Christ, then they have to go. We cannot listen to them. We must reject everything that they say.
Psalm 119.103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Hear his delight for the law of God, for the word of God. He loves the word of God. The Bible is not a bitter book to him. It's a sweet book to him. The content of the Bible is sweet. It is a delight to him. Now, this is not the way it is for an unbeliever. They're miserable when they read the Bible. It's dull and boring to them. It's a bitter book to them. They hate it. But not the believer. It's sweet to him. He loves it. It's like honey to him. right? Just as honey is delightful to the taste because of its sweetness, so the word of God is delightful to the soul because it has spiritual sweetness. right? It has the sweetness of heaven. The things of God are found there. So he has a spiritual sweet tooth, and he wants to satisfy it by the word of God. Don't people do this in life? Don't they love honey? People love sugar. I like sugar. People like candy, right? They like desserts. They love these things. They have, and they crave sweets, these types of things. They love the way they taste. They want to roll it in their mouth, under their tongue, right? Savoring the sweetness of these kinds of food. Well, this is how it is with the child of God. He has this attitude, this desire for the Bible. He has this sweet tooth for the word of God. And for him, the sweetness found in the Bible is better than the sweetness that is found in honey. Honey in the mouth gives us a momentary delight, but it doesn't last all day long. It's just for a moment. But the honey of God's word, it's never ending. It is a spiritual delight that will endure in this life and in the life to come. And one that we can enjoy all day long, right? Without getting cavities, right? Without getting fat and bloated because we're eating too much honey. No, we can have as much of the word of God as we can possibly get, and it's always going to be sweet to us. Psalm 19, Psalm 19, verse 10. says, they, speaking of the word of God, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. And then also in Proverbs 24, Proverbs 24, verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 24, verse 13. says, My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. There, when... The prophet is commanding his son to eat honey. What honey is he talking about? He's talking about the wisdom of God. That's the honey that you need, the wisdom of God that is good and sweet for your soul. This is what we need to be eating as well. Psalm 119, verse 104. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The word of God gives understanding. It gives understanding. It gives discernment to the simple, to the naive, so that they grow and they have understanding. It says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Right? In our natural state, we're simple. We're naive. We're stupid. We're fools. But the word of God gives us wisdom from God so that we cease to be fools and we become wise. When we submit our life to the word of God, then we have understanding. Then we have God's wisdom, and we're able to look at the world according to the wisdom of God. We're able to look at it with discernment. We'll be able to distinguish between good and evil, between a true believer and a false believer, between a true teacher and a false teacher, a true church and a false church, between a wise man and a fool. The word of God will give us this ability. When we have the truth of God's word forming our mind, then we will clearly be able to see the good way and the false way. And when we hear some fellow spewing out lies in the name of wisdom, does anyone walk through the streets proclaiming to everyone that he's a fool in that way? No one does that. Everyone says that they're very wise. Everyone says that they're great. Everyone says that they have understanding and that they know all things, right? This is what they do. Well, when we hear someone saying things contrary to the Bible in the name of wisdom, we will know that this guy, he's a fool. This guy doesn't have any wisdom. This guy, he's up to no good. 
He's not speaking truthfully to me. He's spreading lies. He doesn't have my best interest in mind. He wants to destroy me. So I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to listen to anything he has to say. So, for example, take the student in the biology class. When he hears the professor teaching the lie of evolution, because he knows what the Bible says and he has understanding from the Bible, he's going to be able to quickly discern that this guy is a liar. This guy is telling me what is false. He's not telling me the truth. Now, the professor, he's up there acting like he's the smartest man in the world, right? Acting like he, is, he created the world and everything in it, that he is the fount of all wisdom. The other rubes in the class, the numbskulls, they're sitting there drinking it all up, saying, oh, this is great, it's so wonderful, right? My parents, they're all stupid, and my church is stupid, but this guy, he's the smartest man in the world, and, and I never thought about these things, but now I understand all these wonderful things. This is what everyone's doing. But the one who has his mind fixed on the word of God and who has understanding from the Bible, from the precepts of the Bible, he's going to know that what this guy is saying is false. I'm not going to listen to him. Why would I listen to him? Because he's contradicting the Bible. This isn't what the Bible teaches, so why listen to this man when I know that the Bible is true and he's contradicting the truth? The Bible is giving him discernment and understanding so that he's able to make sense of what's going on in his life what he's hearing, right? What he's experiencing and what he's seeing. Or when he hears the person say that it's very noble and it's a wonderful thing for two men to get married. Well, if we know what the Bible says, we're going to know that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. It teaches that he created them male and female. And the man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. A man should marry a woman, not a man. Right? We'll know that from the Bible. So when we see it being taught and being paraded about in our wicked culture, that it's great and wonderful for two men to be married, we'll be able to say, no way, no way is this right. This is horrible. This is evil. This is a false way. And it's detestable to me. I don't want anything to do with it. The Bible and the understanding of the Bible gives us the ability to discern and recognize the false way. And then when we recognize the false way, what will be our response? Here he says, hatred. Hatred, he says. I get understanding through your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. That's the way that we must be. Hate every false way. Despise it. What is false, it must be detestable to us, loathsome to us, because it contradicts the Bible. Now, many people today say, we should not have hatred. Right? Hatred is contrary to Christian virtue. But here, according to the prophet, hatred is a virtue. Hatred is a Christian virtue that must be a part of our life. Hatred for what is false. We must hate and detest what is false. He says this in Psalm 119, verse 128. Therefore, I esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Right? Whatever God's word says on, every, on everything, he says, that's what's right. And then whenever someone contradicts what I hear God saying in his word, I hate it. I hate it. It's false. It's going to lead me to hell. And I don't want anything to do with that. 158. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. The treacherous, those who are treacherous against God, who turn away from the word of God, who don't obey the law of God. He loathes these people. They are detestable to him because they don't keep the word of God. 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Not only is it the false way, but also according to Psalm 139, it's the false man as well. The false way and the false man that's promoting the false way. Both of them should be detestable in our sight. Psalm 139, verse 19. 139, 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. 
Because they're speaking against God. And how do men speak against God? They contradict his word. They contradict the word of God, but they do it in the name of God because they're taking God's name in vain. They're saying things contrary to the Bible in the name of God. And when he sees this and hears them doing that, he says, I detest them. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And he prays for God to destroy them, to rise up and to slay the wicked. Where is this being taught in the churches today? Where is it being taught today to have hatred for what is false? Who is teaching and promoting holy hatred? This attitude is not found in the church today. But the contrary, we're told to work together. We're told to see the good in others, to look for the best, right? This is what we're told. We're told to hold hands with one another, to overlook our differences, to agree to disagree, right? I don't agree with everything that he says, but he's done a lot of good. And there's a lot of good out there in this church and that church and in this movement and that movement. They've done a lot of good. Was the prophet David willing to agree to disagree? Was the prophet David willing to work together with those who promoted a false way? No. He says, I hate every false way. How can you work together with what you hate, with what you detest? This is the attitude that we must have. Whatever is contrary to the Bible, we must hate it. We must despise it. We must want nothing to do with it. It must be to us as a rotten maggot-filled carcass, right? What good is there in that? Only death, decay, and a foul stench. So it is with false doctrines. So it is with false ideologies, false moralities, false churches. They are false ways that are filled with death and decay, and they must be odious to us. We cannot see any virtue in these things. What virtue is found in the doctrine of evolution? What good is there from that? What about free will theology? What good has come from that? What about liberalism, Roman Catholicism, feminism, homosexuality, the sexual revolution, right? whatever else is contrary to sound teaching? What good is there in any of these things? What benefit do they bring to the Christian life, to the Christian family, to the Christian church? What benefit do they bring to the world and to society? Absolutely nothing. They lead to ruin and misery. They are good for nothing because they are demonic lies that came from the devil. And we must want nothing to do with them and nothing to do with those who promote such things. This is even taught in the New Testament, the Testament of love. Yes, Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, 10 to 16. Actually, did you know there's more instances of love in the Old Testament than the New Testament. And the New Testament speaks much about hell, even more than the Old. Not that they're in contradiction, or not that it should be a competition between one or the other. But I say this because there are those false teachers out there who want to put the Old and the New Testament against one another. And who would say, oh yeah, okay, yeah, hatred in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it's all love and grace. No, it's hatred in the right context in the Old, and hatred in the right context in the New, and it's love and grace in the right context in the old, and it's love and grace in the right context in the new as well. Because there's one gospel, there's one God, there's one way of salvation, there's one way to live a godly life. In the old and in the new, one way. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. And God doesn't change either, nor does Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Titus 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. 
Those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. He's talking about religious hypocrites. Religious hypocrites, what are they good for according to the apostle? Nothing. They are worthless, he said. Worthless for any good deed. They are detestable. They are disobedient. They are worthless for any good deed. And aren't we taught to hate even the garment that is stained by the flesh? We must hate sin. We must hate lies. We must reject these things. First, in our own life, we have to get it out. And then in the lives of others as well. Right? We have to get all these things out. And we must love the Bible and listen to the Bible. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to those who promote the Word of God. Hate what is false and reject those who promote lies and listen to the Bible and listen to those who teach what the Bible says. This is how we have to go through this life. From our conversion until our death. Our life must conform to the wisdom of God found in the Word of God. We must listen only to the voice of Christ and not listen to the voice of strangers, not listen to liars, don't listen to the world, don't listen to men. Only listen to God. And anyone or anything that contradicts God, we should not listen to them or have anything to do with them. Don't let them ruin us. But instead, let us fix our hope on the word of God and build our life on this foundation, the foundation of the word of Christ. Because if we build it on that foundation, we will never be shaken. We will never be moved. But if we build our life on the foundation of the wisdom of men, that's like building your house on the sand. And when the storm comes, what's going to happen to that house? It's going to fall and great will be its ruin. Well, we don't want that to be true of us on the day of judgment. So let's build our life upon the word of God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you, Lord, thanking you. Lord, for giving to us your word. Lord, knowing that your word is, Lord, the only source of wisdom by which men can be made wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, there is no other way that we can know who you are. Lord, that we can know about our own condition and our sin. Lord, of how we can be reconciled to you through the death of your son. Lord, of how it is that we can live a godly life, a life pleasing to you. Lord, these things can only be found in the word of God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that you used the prophets and the apostles, Lord, holy men who were moved by your spirit, and that through them you delivered to us your word without any mixture of error. Lord, give us this conviction. Lord, give us this confidence. Lord, that your word has come from you, that it is perfect, that it is true, and that anyone who contradicts it is a liar. Lord, may this be our attitude and our mindset all day, every day. We have so many voices speaking to us, telling us what to believe, telling us what values we should have, telling us how we should live our life. Lord, these come from our, our friends, our family, from the world. Lord, everyone is telling us what we should do. But Lord, we don't want to listen to other people. We want to listen to you. Lord, we want to listen to your word. And so, Father, we pray that we would be able to have understanding. Lord, give us discernment so that we might be able to distinguish between good and evil. Lord, that we might be able to recognize the good way. And Lord, those who are promoting and teaching the good way. And that they would be our friends. And Lord, we would be able to distinguish what is evil and false and that we would reject it and want nothing to do with it. And that, Lord, we would avoid those who are trying to lead us to hell. Lord, give us this discernment so that, Lord, we don't lose our steadfastness, our confidence. So, Lord, give us greater conviction. Lord, a greater resolve to believe your word. Lord, to study it, to know it. And, Lord, to never doubt anything that comes from the word of God. Lord, may our lives conform to it. Lord, knowing that you are the best teacher. Lord, you are the wisest instructor. Instructor, There is no one who can exceed you. And Lord, if we embrace your wisdom, then we, Lord, will rise above our fellow man as well. 
Lord, not because of anything in us, but because of what is in you, because of your wisdom. So, Lord, may this be true of us. Lord, give us a greater desire for your word. Lord, may it be sweet to us as honey from the honeycomb. And, Lord, may we desire and delight in it more than anything else in this world. And, Lord, we pray that you would keep us from the false way. And, Lord, cause us to be steadfast and immovable, Lord, in these things. As well, Father, we pray for this church. Lord, thinking about where we are in the present. And, Lord, thinking about where we might be in the future. Lord, we know that there are many churches, many places where at one time there was soundness, but then at a later time there was rottenness. Lord, even in the churches that we see in the Bible, the churches founded by your holy apostles, there were many who were very quickly turning away from the faith because they were not relying upon your word. Father, we don't want that to be true of us. We want this church, this body, Lord, to be built upon your word. And we want that to be true not only in our generation, but, Lord, in our children, in our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, Lord, for many generations. Lord, we pray that this would be true, that there would be those found here meeting under this banner of Christ's Reformed Church who believe your word and who hold to it with unwavering conviction. So, Lord, may this be true. Give to us this blessing. Lord, give it to our children and our grandchildren and for many generations. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.